Let us continue to read from God's word from James chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, which will be our focus this afternoon. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. And then if you turn with me to the last Lord's Day in our Heidelberg Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52, going to read that, but especially question answer 127 would be our focus this afternoon as we consider the battleground of temptation. You should find that in the back of your book of praise on page 558, beginning with question and answer 127, which reads, what is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of you, because as our king, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but your holy name, should so receive all glory forever. What does the word amen mean? Amen means, it is true and certain, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Battle of Verdun was one of the major battles of World War I between France and Germany in the area of northeastern France. The German army sought to secure the town of Verdun from the French, as well as at the same time inflict heavy casualties on their enemy. Lasting 10 months, this battle was the longest and most destructive conflict of World War I, if not perhaps even in the history of modern warfare. There were 306,000 casualties and a half a million wounded. 40 million artillery shells were fired, some of which are still present in that area of Europe today. The 
results. Instead of a victory for either side, there was no clear winner, a stalemate, even though, of course, the war would continue elsewhere with a victor and a loser. We think of this picture, perhaps we can even think of it in our minds, but if we use this as a picture of the battleground of temptation and of sin's power to destroy and of the great armies, in a sense, that beset us, the great enemies that would assail the church and every individual Christian in the history of the world, we get an idea of the spiritual battle that our Lord proclaims to us in the Lord's Prayer. And that we must very much be aware of such things in order that we be able to stand and, yes, brothers and sisters, fight. We see, first of all, from verse 12 of James chapter 1, encouragement to stay in the battle. And we have to understand the transition in James's thought as we come here to our text. In verse 2 and following, he speaks about trials, which is the same word that's used there in verse 12. He begins by talking about trials in the sense of suffering, as we see later on in the book of James, using the good example of Job, who endured so much and yet did not forsake the Lord. It is evident that these Christians, to whom James writes, were enduring a testing of the genuineness of their faith by opposition from within and without. Even as you and I do today, the church continues to struggle to profess her faith in a way that pleases her Lord. Thus, when James speaks in verse 12 of trial or temptation, he's speaking more of an ordeal that we have to bear up under or endure than of a luring into sin that must be resisted, as we usually think of the word temptation. However, the principle that he unfolds there in verse 12 is equally applicable to sin, even as we see from the following words or description. Since God calls us to suffer after all, not merely in the sense of, of enduring a trial, but also by the very fact that we are tempted. That is something that we have to endure. It is a great difficulty because, of course, the enemy is working upon us to do what? To disobey God, which is our very fallen nature. As we're reminded again in our form of baptism. This is the nature that our children, including ourselves, come into the world. But we endure these temptations. We fight in order that what is good and noble in accordance with God's decree may shine forth even in the midst of the attacks. In terms of a battle then, as we present it this afternoon, we are encouraged not to abandon our posts not to flee or give up or surrender, especially when the battle is claiming casualties around us, when it is causing great difficulty or consternation in heart and mind. We read in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That's our encouragement here. Blessed. Now, the world will look upon us and say, How bizarre. 
If something entices you, if something desires you, you should go do it. Go, go have fun and enjoy it. But God says that one who endures, who fights against this temptation, is blessed by him. And this results, or perhaps in part, consists of a, of a happy and joyful disposition. Not the look of one who is haggard, who is tired from the battle. Who may be war-torn, although that is sometimes the case. But God insists and God intends that we be thankful when we are able to fight. By the spirit that he gives to us, the spirit that we desire to work within ourselves and in our children in order that God may be glorified. And certainly, isn't it not true in a subjective sense? Aren't we, aren't we greatly assured of God's love and presence the more we resist sin? Because what we are seeing is that indeed Christ is working in us. It is not merely us responding to the call of obedience. But rather we realize, as Paul says so eloquently in Romans 6, that we are dead to sin. Therefore we live no longer in it, but rather I am alive in Christ. I have been raised with him. And yet even in the midst of this blessedness and happiness and joy, let us not turn for a moment our eyes from the destruction and power of sin, as some within the history of the church have been tempted to do, as if to think that some time in this life I, I have ultimately destroyed all the demons, so to speak, of sin, and I, I will never ever be tempted once more as I was before. Look at the verb that there Paul or James uses in verse 12, persevere or enduring that temptation. Sometimes the blessedness comes even in the midst of being under fire. Yes, even being shell-shocked. Being very tired and weary from the battle. And yet looking to Christ even in the midst of these things. Indeed, James reminds us in verse 1 as he opens this letter that he is a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is desire here, of course, that they not merely follow any example that he would teach them, although that, that may be true and applicable. It certainly is for parents as they raise their children in the fear of the Lord, and for office bearers as well, who set an example for us all. But to be Christians, to be true lovers of Christ, who himself hated sin in all of its manifestations, who fought sin at every turn, who would not give up, who himself endured a great trial, a great temptation, and who went to the cross willingly for sinners such as you and I. This is the man whom our Father in heaven has called for us, in whose footsteps we follow. Only then, when we see that we have truly hated sin as Christ has hated sin, that we have stood the test, that we are approved by God, that we are truly genuine believers in the Lord. Don't believe that 
here, James is speaking of our faith so much, but even of ourselves as a person. Faith is at the core of our spiritual lives, to be sure. We teach our children to have faith, to trust in Christ, and faith appropriates Christ and all his benefits. But we are saved from sin. We are redeemed, body and soul, both in life and in death. In a sense, then, the Christian himself, not just his faith, but he himself or herself must be genuine. And what that means is that they must continue to be a believer and a Christian throughout their entire life. For only those who are truly servants of Christ will receive the crown of life in his name. If we give up halfway or even a short time into that battle as we have learned to do so from the example of mothers and fathers. And when I say give up, I mean we turn away from the faith completely We walk away from Christ and indulge ourselves in every sin. And unlike the prodigal son, we do not come to repentance. Truly, we are not Christ's because we have abandoned him. He will say to us that he never knew us. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Did we not read so plainly in the book of Genesis? So shortly after the fall of man, That God warned Cain. In condescension, he told him, Cain, don't give in to sin. Cain did not heed. And it reaped the disastrous result of him taking the life of his own brother, his flesh and his blood. This may, of course, then lead to wondering, does God intend to teach us That we have earned this crown of life. That somehow we have merited or deserved that which it is given. But no. He says after all that we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's part of the encouragement, isn't it? Not just a blessing in this life, but something that God himself said that he was going to give us. Calvin rightly says that our fighting only renders us fit to receive it. Similar to the manner in which a a person may be trained for war, learning to to handle their weapon, learning the, the tactics of the enemy. And now fitted and ready, they go out into the battlefield. All of this was by God's preparation. All of this was of the grace of the Lord, who himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death, before us we are encouraged that what is on the other side of the fight of the battle is not more or eternal fighting is not a struggle that will go on forever but true and everlasting peace granted gifted to those who indeed trust in Christ and show their faith by their works Indeed, we see that God loves us, even in the sense in which we love him, that God has promised this to those who love him. Our love for God, because of his son, Christ, whom he has given us, must be greater than our love for sin. 
It must surpass it. It must, as it were, blind sin. Rob it of its power. Destroy it and root it out from our very hearts and souls. Because God's love was greater at Calvary, on the cross, where Christ was crucified. Yes, for sinners. What more then do we need than this encouragement? But we see secondly also as James instructs us, we we need education about the, the nature of the battle. Now imagine you were being transported to a place where a great war was going on or a great battle and you did not have proper training or information. How would you fight? Would it depend upon the environment that you were going into, whether it was a desert or place, or perhaps a place of cold? Would you just red, run headlong into things and, and not worry about what's going to happen and just hope for the best? No, absolutely not. God has instructed us. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Here we learn two things. God himself is not under the control of sin. Or is he the origin of sin? Now we might think, of course, we know that God is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. There's no blemish. There's there's nothing lacking in him, even, with respect to that which is good. This is our theology, because it's the theology of Scripture. Indeed, James goes on to say in verse 17 and 18 that our God is the overflowing fountain of all good. He gives us everything that we need in this life to live and to abound. He is our Father in heaven, after all, and only wants the best for us. But you see, the Holy Spirit, who is our educator by Christ, knows our hearts, doesn't he? He knows what lurks within. How we can sometimes, even as believers, at least be open to the suggestion, if not even be convinced for a time, to blame who in the midst of our troubles? To blame the Creator. I suppose, in a sense, Cain would have learned this from his own father, What Adam had said regarding the woman that God had given to him was in Adam's estimation the reason for why he fell. He blamed his creator. You see, if we do not have this in our minds, we do not understand this principle, blaming God will do what? It will continue to harden our hearts. Because as we shift the blame, of course, we refuse to see our own shortcomings and failures. There will be no repentance, no room for repentance, no confession, and certainly no need for the salvation of Christ. Of course, it is not always so that we blame God, but sometimes others too. And shifting that blame to someone else. We think of Aaron in Exodus chapter 32 who said that the Israelites said to me, make gods who will go before us. So 
I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's almost a, a laughable description. You know, suddenly this calf just, just came out of nowhere. I, I don't really understand. And, lo- and look at these people. Look at everything that they gave to me. But Aaron was responsible as a high priest and even as a believer. God had plainly told his people in his word, I want no idols from you because they will corrupt your hearts. They will turn you away from me and they will turn your children away from me. And under, as it were, peer pressure, Aaron says, well, we did it. And that's just the way it is. If we remain uneducated, we do not understand how sin works. We do not understand the battle that we are undergoing. Not just, of course, facts in terms of things that we can list, even things that we can communicate to our children, but truly schooling them in the scriptures. We are an easy target and will likely fail on that battlefield. Brothers and sisters, most importantly, to adopt a philosophy, a theology, whether implicitly or explicitly blames God or another for our sin and our weakness, does what? Makes us turn against the very one who can help us. To our captain and general in the fight. To Christ who taught us that we are so weak, as our catechism rightly says, that we can't even stand for a moment. We certainly cannot rely upon ourselves. Instead, we have to ask God for his help. That is why we pray. That is why this was given in the form of a petition. Because James says earlier that we must ask, verse 6. And when we ask, we must believe. And by doing so, then, we believe the Holy One. The one who is without fault, the one who is just and righteous, who knows us in and out, will grant us the assistance that we need. Perhaps especially when our courage fails. When we want to stay in the foxhole or in the trench. Because we know what happens when we stand up against the enemy. That brings us to our third point. Exposure of the enemy in the battle. We don't just need to know some of the variables about what's going on with respect to where we are on the battlefield and who is with us. We know, need to know who is against us, who is fighting us, who is, who is causing so much of this, this difficulty, this turmoil in this world. Remarkably for James, the enemy is not first and foremost Satan. Now, it is true that later on in chapter 4, verse 7, he speaks of resisting the devil and he will flee from you. Or for James, perhaps, we might think is an easy target would be the world around us that would constantly trip us up and and turn our attention away from Christ, our, our general or captain in the fight. And indeed, he does say, And speak of this in verse 27, of keeping oneself polluted by the world. But James' focus here is upon us. 
Each one is tempted, he says, when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. It is true, as someone has said, in terms of the battlefield or battleground of temptation, we have met the enemy and he is us. The wars and battles and strife and fighting of all kinds begins and ends with us. It's left at our doorstep. Not that we should destroy humanity, as some radical environmentalists claim. The problem is not humanity, or man made in the image of God, of course, as God made us good, but the corruption of ourselves that remains and is tied to our nature. This verse, as all of scripture assumes that it will be there until we are fully redeemed, This is true of mankind, but also of individuals. Cain was angry with who? With Abel, his brother. Listen to then what the scripture says, how it describes this process of temptation. The language there is that we are dragged away, or as the New King James Version calls it, drawn away. We are drawn away by something. Why? Because it entices us. It it baits us. There's something attractive about sin. Otherwise, sin would never work. Or temptation would never be successful. What are we being told here about ourselves in terms of the fact that we are the enemy? Well, we are being made conscious of the fact that we have interest in sin. Because sometimes we contemplate sin in in the form of entertaining it in our mind and and it can seem so innocent especially when we have not actually in our estimation transgressed by committing the sin we are told today after all these philosophies easily creep into the church that that i have freedom to do what i want my my personal rights are more important than sacrificing myself for the sake of community or family. It is the individual who is being lifted up on the pedestal, who is being worshipped in our generation. Young peoples and young adults are told that they may sleep with whom they want, and there are no consequences to such things. Because we please ourselves. But as we were reminded briefly this morning... It is a lie. Because we're willing to do these things as long as there's something in it for us, but we don't realize that we are also being controlled. We are being controlled. We are being master, and we are not the master. We have worshipped ourselves, but really behind, in the, the shadow that we are casting, we see something far gruesome, more gruesome and dangerous. God said to Cain, after all, that sin desires to have you, to possess you, at once you, body and soul. But you must master it. You must defeat yourself, in other words. Because sin is not only outward, but also inward. That is why the word desire here is so instructive. It is our own evil desire that we possess 
that would lead us in this direction. Satan could do nothing to us if it was not our sinful nature that was warped. As rightly Thomas Manton, the great Puritan, notes that man consults with his desires more than anything else. Instead of going to God and seeking his will through his word, for that matter, going to those who are godly in our lives, even as we're reminded again that parents must instruct their children, and there's a certain expectation that children will go to their parents. And we should teach that to them at a young age. That when they are tempted, certainly pray to their father in heaven, but, but get help from mom and dad. Get help from pastors and elders and others who, who can discuss these things with us and help us to fight, particularly when we feel weak. Because we, we often consult with ourselves. And when there's no other conversation partner involved, the only voice we hear is that desire, which only does what puffs us up and, and makes us feel good about ourselves, as we said, but would never lead us to think that it is destructive. And that its intent, as strange as it is, is to be a traitor to ourselves. A traitor to God's desire for us. He says in verse 16, therefore, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Know the enemy. Know yourself. In particular, because if we, we fail to do these things, if we are not encouraged, if we are not educated, if we don't know the enemy, there are fourth and finally extreme consequences of defeat as we see so plainly in verse 15. Then after sin has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Clearly we see the imagery of a child here in the language of scripture. Conception, birth, full grown. We certainly want the best for our baptized children. As we said, we recognize that they are born in sin. They have inherited a corrupt nature, but there is a promise to them. A great and glorious promise about the, a great and glorious future. But also a great and glorious God who guards us in this life and protects us. The best thing that we can hear with regards to sin is indeed its end. If it is not mastered by God's grace. Warning us of course that eternal life is not only on the other side of the grave, but eternal death. In terms of the battleground, a person who will not, who refuses to take up arms against temptation, has taken a flag, a white flag, and waved it for all to see. They have crossed over no man's land even, willingly handed themselves over to the enemy who will only torture them, who will kill them. And then in sorrow, 
the greatest sadness that no sadness on this earth can know or express, they will realize what this is means or means for them. When desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. Are desires in and of themselves wrong? No. But the desire that James here speaks of is. It is a desire, of course, that is contrary to God's law and leads us straight into a machine gun nest. Straight into an area where bombs are dropping and death is all around. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, there are mass casualties in the world today. Out of the heart proceeds the issues of life, so our Lord taught us. One who continues to go along the pathway of following the pollution of the heart will bring forth death. The wages of sin, after all, is death. In contrast to the gift of life that God gives, as we saw in verse 12. What death are we speaking of? Are we speaking of physical death or spiritual death? It is possibly here that James is thinking of how some sins can, of course, lead to the death of the person. But more likely, he has the understanding of the fall of man in the back of his mind. When Adam was told, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. Did Adam die physically upon that day? No, but his soul, as it were, died. And we say, how can a man die twice if we are born in sins and and trespasses dead? How can we die again? It's because God has called us to live this life of resisting sin and temptation. And they have failed. And what waits them on the other side of that grave then is not just merely the destruction of the body, but also of the soul. Thus, brothers and sisters, with sin and temptation, amongst ourselves and teaching our children, we we must have no mercy. There must be no quarter. No court-martial. No honorable discharge. We must kill death or sin before it kills us. As John Owen said, cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. These are kinds of courageous things that we say to our children, to our young peoples. Is this what they hear from the mouths of mom and dad? Do they see this in their lives as well? their parents are resisting these temptations that come into their life as if it ends when we we get married and settle down and start a family but it is always there lurking amongst us ready to destroy our enemy after all is indeed not only ourself but Satan who would devour us as a lion thus we must conclude But the truth of the matter is, if we have not realized it already, is that we are in the very midst of this battle. But I wish to end on a note of encouragement. 
The encouragement is found later on in James' epistle in chapter 5. That the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. As we heard this morning, it may be in the minds of some with regards to themselves or others that someone is beyond the help of God. But not while they still breathe. And not at least while their bodies are alive. God calls us to his help that he offers to us. His spirit who works within us, as we said. The spirit of the the very Christ who has been risen from the grave. The very Christ who taught us to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.